0: Welcome to Disciple Dojo, and we are so excited to have our very first original Dojo Dialogue partner, Dr. Carmen Joy Imes is back with us from sunny California, and she and I are really excited about this discussion in particular. We'll get into why that is in just a minute. But uh, if you haven't already, definitely encourage you go back and watch the first discussion that Carmen and I had. It was great. We talked about so much. We We just got to nerd out over scholarship and PhDs and biblical studies and Old Testament. It was a great discussion. Uh, So I'm really happy to have Carmen back. And if you have not already, check out over at Disciple Dojo's online store. We have gifts for your favorite Bible nerds out there. We have the shirt I'm wearing, the Aroma of Christ uh, from 2 Corinthians. That's available. We also have... Old Testament in a coffee mug. So while you're sipping your coffee, you can be learning the overall meta-narrative of the Old Testament, which is obviously going to help you in your discipleship. I don't know about your sanctification, but it can't hurt. So check those (laughs) out. Um,
1: (laughs) The coffee helps with that.
0: (laughs) The coffee helps with the sanctification, the caffeine. Check those out. And uh, we have plenty of other gifts over there. Anything purchased really helps Disciple Dojo and it helps spread the word about this ministry. And if you have not yet subscribed here on YouTube, guys, we're closing in at the end of 2023 two, we are shooting for 5,000 subscribers and we're getting really close. I think we're at like 4,200 and something. So if you haven't already subscribe. and what really helps us, what tells YouTube's algorithm, Hey, we want to see more Disciple Dojo type videos is if you click that little notifications bell that tells YouTube there's a ready built audience for this content and that bumps us up, and it also helps get us get recommended to people who may not know about Disciple Dojo. So those are two ways you can really help this ministry out. Okay, enough housekeeping. Let's get down to business. Carmen Joy Imes, how are you today? It's so great to see you.
1: I'm great. It's great to see you too, James Michael. Good to be back on the show.
0: We loved having you the first time you and I just sat around and had a great conversation and we had fun Mm -hmm. and uh, it just, the time flew by. And when I posted it, people said that was, I had literally a comment said, I never thought I would listen to a two hour discussion about biblical scholarship. Mm -hmm. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad that I did. I am so pumped to have you back in here. What have you been doing since the last time Mm -hmm. you were here? What have you been working on lately? What's in, what's coming down the pipe for Carmen Joy Imes?
1: Well, I have finished a manuscript for my next book, Being God's Image: Why Creation Still Matters. The current status is I have the page proofs and I'm supposed to be checking them for typos and sending them back to the publisher. It's coming out in May of 2023, but you can already pre-order it at IVP's website. It's not quite on Amazon yet, so I've been working on that. Um, I have a lot of students this semester, 300 of them at Biola University. So I am spending a lot of time with students, answering their questions, interacting with them about the scriptures. How many and classes
0: I'm, is that between those 300 students? It's How It's four
1: classes? Four, four classes. So I have two giant classes, 130 students each, an Old Testament survey. And then I have a class on the Psalms and a biblical theology seminar.
0: That's awesome. I love that. That's so cool.
1: And I'm plugging away at my Exodus commentary for Baker Academic. I'm in the plagues right now, in the last cycle of plagues. So
0: (laughs) that's, I'm excited uh, to get that commentary. I really am. And I'm going to have to update our recent series that we've been doing here Seven Hmm. Bible Reading Tips from a Black Belt, where I talk about people, you know, hey, here's what you need to know when you start reading Genesis. And I just did Exodus, Leviticus will be up next. Mm Uh, I'm in a class right now with Dr. Christine Palmer this semester at mm-hmm. Gordon comwell Exegesis of Leviticus. And so I'm waiting Sweet. one more before we meet one more time just to make sure I'm not missing anything vastly mm-hmm. important. And then I'll probably put that video together because um, nice. Leviticus is severely underrated among Christians. It is. And it's it a fascinating is. It book. Is. But I don't have to yeah. tell you that. I mean, that's what you make a <laughs> living telling people. So, guys, indeed, read. Indeed read Carmen's book. If you haven't already, I'm really excited for her next follow-up version in that. So we'll, we'll have links in the video. People can find you and follow your work Torah Tuesday is going strong. So if you have not mm-hmm. subscribed to Carmen's channel, go do that as well and stay tuned every Tuesday. She's puts out great content and it's mostly been at least recently in Exodus, right? As mm-hmm. you're working yep. through the commentary. I'm just,
1: I'm just working my way through verse by verse. So
0: Yeah. It's fantastic. Folks, you get, you get a little preview of coming attractions because while she's working through this in these videos, she's writing a commentary. So it's Mm -hmm. a really cool way to kind of whet your appetite for what will then become a lifelong resource, what she's got it published. It's
1: also a really fun way for me to crowdsource. And so I'm testing out some of my ideas and getting feedback from people and hearing if they think this is a, a plausible way to read the text. So it's been really fun for my own research too.
0: That's great. And if somebody makes like a super astute or profound observation, (laughs) they may make it into a footnote in the commentary. You never know. Could be, could be. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Well, listen, we have um, in other catching up news, we've got SBL coming up, the Society for Biblical Literature. And I want to show because people watching this may not know. So SBL is a conference that meets every year and they have their annual meeting. This is not going to be, I've been a member of SBL before, like years ago when I was a student, and now I'm a member again, but uh, I had forgotten, or I'd never gone to a, a meeting in person. And so they said, well, mm-hmm. we'll send you the program book. So I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, they're going to send a program book, you know, pamphlet that's got, pamphlet. hey, here's some <laughs> workshops here. No, folks, they send a phone book. This is the size of a small town phone book that they send. Yep. I cracked up when I opened the mail. I mean, this this is the program book and these are like all of the sessions and everything. So, it was an afternoon looking through this trying yeah. to get a bead on what I'm going to go to and um and I'm obviously we joke about me having imposter syndrome being the popularizer in the crowd, but it it's really overwhelming. How much mm. stuff is at SBL in terms of people to see and people to meet yeah. and and talks like to. Like pretty to.
1: much every author of every book behind you in your screen and every book behind me will be there.
0: It's like, it's unbelievable. The ones that are still alive, yeah, they'll they'll. Yep. yep. The funny thing is, I am probably not going to know. I'll, I will have to look at their name tags because I don't know what yep. any of these people look like. I've, I, I know well, their that's... faces from the books.
1: That's the great thing about SBL is everyone has a name tag, and I call, it, I call it a walking bibliography because you're walking along and your bibliography is coming past you in the hallway. It's
0: amazing. <laughs> well, I'm pumped for it. Do you have any tips? Real quick, before we jump into what we're going to talk about, say, do you have any tips for an SBL white belt, rookie, brand new, <laughs> never been, I know to bring oh. some money because there's some good book discounts, uh, yeah. but any, anything I need to know?
1: You know, uh, when I first started going about 13 years ago, I tried to go to all the paper sessions and I just like, I didn't want to miss anything. And by the time you've been to like 25 paper presentations, your brain actually can't absorb anymore. So I've become more selective about what I'll go and listen to. So I actually don't get the program book in the mail anymore. I just do a search in the online program for Exodus and Psalms. And I see like, what do I have to see in the areas where I'm researching? And then I let go of everything else because I have to save time to see all my friends. (laughs) There are so many people who are teaching Bible and theology around the world who will be there. And it's really great to catch up and meetings with publishers and all that. So I've scaled back on the number of papers that I actually attend um, because I find that those informal conversations can be just as valuable for my own development. So yeah, soak in what you can when you hit a wall. Uh, Take some time off.
0: (laughs) That is, I I like that advice. That is very similar. I I just just released a video. I things I think churches can learn from Mm jujitsu, and what you just said is very similar to when I go to jujitsu seminars, especially like the one I went to in Las Vegas earlier this year. There were like fourteen Hall of Fame instructors, and your brain just stops absorbing at a certain point. And you just have to go, okay, let me just marinate on whatever i learned and go talk with people, hang out. And that's when you have some of the best conversations and troubleshooting. And so that's good advice. That's good. I I think I'll be able to apply that pretty easily because it's so similar uh, to the outlook. I love it. Well, that's helpful to know, and I'm excited to be there. And you and I will be getting to see uh, another friend of the dojo, Dr. J. Richard Middleton, So that's going to be a lot of fun to connect in person. Yeah, Uh, looking forward to it. It'll be good. Well, listen, this this session that we're having today is very special because Carmen and I both have a burden, obviously, for helping people better understand the Bible and to more Mm -hmm. carefully and charitably interpret Mm -hmm. scripture, particularly in areas where Christians disagree. There are a lot of areas where Christians disagree and navigating those disagreements can be a challenge because our natural human tendency is when we feel something threatened, we want to fight. We want to yep. put up walls, we want to defend, and we want to argue. And nowhere do you see this more clearly than in politics mm-hmm. and religion. And mm-hmm. we're not going to touch the politics side, but we are mm-hmm. going to look at a place within the religion side where this disagreement happens. And that's the issue of uh, the role of women in ministry, what is mm-hmm. fancy, more fancily known as egalitarianism versus complementarianism and all of the shades of each of those. Mm-hmm. So, um, Carmen, just to to get those on board, because we have a, a pretty wide audience watch the Disciple Dojo videos. Some mm-hmm. are very informed on this debate and have been... Mm-hmm passionate about whatever side they fall on. And some yep. aren't even aware that there's a debate on this issue. Mm-hmm. So can you just sum up in a couple of, you know, however long you want, what what's at stake here? What's this issue? Mm-hmm. What's the controversy?
1: Yeah. So the controversy is on how uh, it is on whether there are lines between what women can and can't do in the church. Um, Is there a boundary? Are some roles in the church reserved just for men and others available to women? And if you grew up in a church where anybody could do anything, you might not have even realized that there was an issue here. Um, But many, many evangelicals grow up in spaces where uh, a a woman could do some things, like, say, teach Sunday school to children, but they would never see a woman in the pulpit preaching or a woman on the, the board of elders. Um, and and what's I think most bizarre about this issue is how many different places there are to draw the line. So even people who would use the same label to describe their theology, they would say, I'm complementarian. I believe that men and women have different, uh, different gifts and different roles in the church. There's some kind of hierarchy that's established by God. Even those within that camp have lots of different ways of living that out. Um, placing boundaries on, on what women can do. So, so this is an issue that comes up a lot in conversation. I'm a professor to undergraduate students, and I have every week in my office, young women who want to know, what does the Bible say about what I can do in the church? How do I know what God is calling me to do? And how do I make sure I'm not crossing a line? If there's a line, uh, that, that prohibits me from doing something, how, how can I tell what that is? So this is an issue that's that that strikes close to close to home for a lot of people.
0: I remember in seminary at Gordon-Conwell having being in class with uh, men and women and even among mm-hmm. our female students there was yep. there was a divide somewhere in churches where women were encouraged to go into full pastoral elder level ministry. And some were in denominations where the roles of women were open to a number of things, but not that office of ordained elder or what we would think of as senior pastor. And so even among the women colleagues of mine, Mm
1: -hmm. there was
0: some disagreement on it. And what I would like to make clear at the beginning of this discussion, because this is a discussion that both Carmen and I believed needs to happen. And it needs to happen Mm -hmm. well without the rancor and the divisiveness that usually permeates it. What I want to emphasize is we're not having a discussion. How do I say it? This is not a sociological or Mm -hmm. a political rights discussion. What what we are focused on is theologically, exegetically, hermeneutically, what does scripture say? Because there are always going to be positions that we as believers hold to that are completely contrary to the surrounding culture in different ways. And if we're not careful, we can accidentally or sometimes um, not so accidentally link our Mm -hmm. theology to our sociopolitical ideology And yes. pretend that they're the same thing. And they're not the same thing. They're, they're two very that's different right. things. So I yeah, preface a... this discussion with whatever your political, sociological views on gender ideology and all that kind of stuff, if you can, and you're watching this, put that aside for the moment mm-hmm. and and help us or, or join us as we're focusing on the, the biblical, theological, yeah. exegetical issues that are involved.
1: Yeah, that's that's such a great place to start. Um, I mean, for me, the the buck stops here and starts here, right? Like, what do the scriptures say about uh, about gender and and gender roles in ministry? That's that's actually really all that matters yeah. uh, is what the scriptures say. Um, and I think one reason that we very quickly get polarized on this issue is because the terms themselves that we use to describe the two positions are actually misleading. And Because yes. uh, sometimes miscommunicate. So yes. um, I read a book a couple of years ago by Michelle Lee Barnwall, who's one of my colleagues here at Biola. Um, and it the book is titled Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian. Uh, and she talks about why both terms are problematic. Um, so uh, just quickly... the the term complementarian is the one that's used to describe the view that there are some rules that are limited, uh, that women are limited from pursuing, so that there's some hierarchy. But the problem with that is that complementarity is something that most egalitarians also affirm. They would say, men and women are not exactly the same. We are different in some way, and we complement each other, and we're both needed. So, even the term complementarian is is kind of confusing because, like, what are you really saying? And then the term egalitarian, which is used to describe those who say there there should be, there, there are no roles that are close to women in the church. Women can do anything. It's, the whole thing is framed by using the word egalitarian, it implies that equality is the biblical principle behind it. But when you look at the scriptures, the scriptures are not as concerned with uh, with establishing equality. They're actually talking about they call all of us to to a role of servant, and so it's not about equal rights. It's about it's about servanthood. So even the word egalitarian then can sort of get us started off on the wrong foot.
0: So yeah, I agree with you. Comp- I'm so glad you said that because it it frustrates me. In discussions like that, because yeah, complementarians assume that if you're not complementarian, you don't think that men and women are different, that they complement each other. And you're absolutely right. Like, no, no, it's it's completely not the issue. And same thing with egalitarian. I come from a, a Methodist Wesleyan evangelical background and i even i when i listen to some people from my own tradition talk about their views on scripture and women in ministry mm-hmm. i hear very little exegetical uh insight mm. and much political social yeah. equal rights civil rights type language and i just think yeah. you're not you're having the wrong conversation that's not the mm-hmm. conversation that that this centers around so thank you so much yeah. for highlighting that right at the beginning so where should we start in a discussion when it comes to gender roles? Do we just jump to the New Testament and just say, well, this is what it says about elders. There you go. That settles it. Yeah, or...
1: I, th- I think I'm glad you asked because this is where I think the conversation um, gets derailed really quickly is because there, there are a couple of passages in Paul. That are the hot button passages that like these are the, they take all the, they have all the gravitational force in the conversation. And so we're, we're right in the weeds instead of starting where we should start, which to me is the book of Genesis and creation and seeing what is God saying about what it means to be human from the very beginning? And I think we can't, we can't tackle these problem passages in Paul until we've laid the appropriate groundwork. And so I would start in Genesis one with God creating humans as his image. And, you know, as we've already said, I've just written a book about this. And so I've been thinking about uh, Genesis one and what does it mean to be the image of God? Uh, I take a, uh, I take the view that's probably a minority view that the image of God is not a capacity that we possess or even a function. But it's 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 our identity it's our human identity and it can't be lost or, or marred or destroyed in any way yeah. so I think before we get to the to these tricky texts in Paul we need to start w- where the Bible starts and that is at the beginning with creation so in Genesis 1 126 uh, it says then God said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So it's very clear here that, that human, the, the human vocation from the beginning is one of rulership and rulership is a consequence of being made in God's image or made as God's image. Um, I would argue that the image of God is who we are, not a capacity that we possess. But the consequence of that identity is that we rule. And here it says male and female are made in God's image. So uh, that to me is really an important starting place because from the get-go, we don't have hierarchy between men and women. Men and women are both told to rule over creation on God's behalf. So I think that's an I think that's a really important starting point.
0: Mm-hmm. And for those who are watching, we're putting it on screen. So God's creating when He says, "In our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over." Uh, and mm-hmm. and it's clear that this is for both for Adam, male and female. Yes. And yes. then when you get down here, you have and I like how the NIV has preserved the tripartite poetry of it. You have the God created. Adam in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And so it's yes. linking this male and female is the parallel to image of God and in his own image. So the, yes, the image of God, male and female in the beginning, there is this, There's it's shared. It's The separation mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Uh, so then that's where we begin a discussion of gender issues, obviously. Where does the disconnect come? Where does the disagreement start? Uh, where, where are things like patriarchy or, um, hierarchy? Yeah. Where, where does that appear?
1: Well, a lot of people assume that it appears right away in chapter two. So chapter two is of course the second creation account where, uh, God creates Adam from the dust. And then he says, uh, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So this is Genesis 2, 18. And many English Bible readers get to that verse and assume that a helper is someone subservient, that God made Adam first and then Eve, and so she serves him in some way. And the the English translation of this verse reinforces that. But I think it's actually quite misleading because the word helper uh, in Hebrew if you pull Ezer, that out,
0: so yeah. They, yes. The Hebrews here, Azer Konegdo, Yes. Uh, a, so, a helper, so the, helpmate, opposite of yes. him or suitable for
1: him. Yes. So the Konegdo is like a, a corresponding to him. They're like in some way. And then the Azer is the important word. Um, it, it appears about 100 times in the Hebrew Bible. And I've looked all of them up, and half of those occurrences describe Yahweh as Israel's Azar. And then the other half describe a military ally. So if you're in battle and you're about to be crushed, you need you need an azer to come and save you, to come fight alongside you. And so God envisions from the beginning a community, a complementarity uh, between male and female that together they partner in doing the will of God. And if we, that the, the English word helper just makes it sound like this is the cleanup crew or, you know, she's going right. to make him some sandwiches while he does the garden work. And and I just think that doesn't hold water. If you look at all the other occurrences of this word, never once does Azar describe what a servant does right. in the Hebrew Bible. It's always God or a military ally. So, so I don't think we see hierarchy in chapter two. Uh, so when you asked, where does the hierarchy come from? Well, mm-hmm. the first time I see it is in chapter three. Yes. after adam and eve rebel against god um in verse 16 it said he says to the woman i will make your pains and childbearing very severe with painful labor you'll give birth to children your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you both male and female are told to rule in chapter one and they're supposed to rule over the fish the birds And the living creatures that move along the ground, they're not told to rule over each other. The ruling over other humans comes into play after the fall. And so that that I think matters for for the way we think about gender roles and and whether there should be hierarchy. Um, I see a whole swath of evangelicals leaning into Genesis 3.16 and trying to preserve that hierarchy rather than leaning into God's creation design of partnership between men and women uh, to rule over creation together.
0: Yeah. I think that's something that people thinking about this debate need to know is a key question that will determine sort of which stream you follow in terms of the two traditional sides, a key foundational, like a headwater question is, Mm. was the hierarchy that's explicit in Genesis three sixteen because it's right there. He will rule over you. Yep. Is yep. that a resulting punishment or is that mm. God making clear what was a prior intent that he had from the mm. beginning that was not stated uh, yes. until yeah. then? Because I've heard yep. complementarians make that argument. And okay. of course, egalitarians make the, well, no, this is the result of the fall. And I think yeah. it's really helpful for people to have that in mind is where do I land exegetically on this question yeah. and you you have to be aware or do you remember the controversy when the ESV changed this verse a couple mm-hmm. of years ago for those yeah. that don't know the the ESV updated it's it, there's there's been four ESV editions I believe and they make small usually minute changes but the last time they made a significant revision they changed this verse to your desire will be, and they translated this for your husband, they translated it as your desire will be contrary to your husband. Mm-hmm. And that puts a very different spin on what is going on here because your desire will be for your husband seems like, you know, a longing or a wanting, you know, wanting love, wanting uh Wanting acceptance. connection. Yeah. And yeah. then the husband not giving it and ruling over, whereas if you yep. – read it as your desire will be contrary to your husband. Mm-hmm. It's like sin's desire for Cain crouching at the mm-hmm. door. And so it yep. takes an antagonistic shade. And what's yeah. hard about this passage is this word desire in Hebrew, teshuka mm-hmm. it only appears two other times to my knowledge mm-hmm. in the Bible. Once when it's describing sin's desire for Cain, and then mm. in the height of the Song of Songs, when it says, I am my beloved's, his desire is for mm. me. And so mm. it's there's some ambiguity there because I, yeah. you know, it, this is what people really have these exegetical arguments about in Bible translation totally. meetings. Totally.
1: <laughs> you know, and, and another place I've heard people talk about there's that there's hierarchy is that Adam names Eve. And naming implies hierarchy for some people. Um, But I, I again, find it interesting that that does not happen until after they rebel against God's command. So uh, it's not until chapter 3, verse 20, that it says Adam named his wife Eve. Um, And even there... um, even you'd, you'd have to first decide that naming implies hierarchy. I don't know that that actually works because you've got uh, scenes like Hagar naming mm-hmm. God. She's the first right. to name God and she clearly is not uh, above God. So I don't know that, you, that that argument even works. But if you decided that naming uh, implies hierarchy, then it still doesn't help this question because it happens after the rebellion. So it could be a consequence of the fall rather than part of God's intended design
0: so we've we're in genesis and we're seeing the beginning and at the beginning like we said you you kind of have to make a choice of how you're going to interpret these passages and and obviously i would say to somebody don't make a choice first and then read the rest of the bible through that lens mm. but rather kind of keep a stereo focus going mm. like read forward in scripture with both views in mind and mm. see now what um like we do with eschatology or any other study, mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. best fits what I'm going to encounter as I go and keeping both of those options open. W- yeah. Where where then do we go from there uh, as we're well, trying I, to think about this issue?
1: I think it's clear, you know, many students will say, well, why is the Bible patriarchal? Like there's so, there's clearly, you know, if if you're right that there's not a hierarchy in Genesis 1 and 2, then why does it seem like the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, there is a hierarchy and men do all the leading? And so my answer to that is that the Bible is not written in a vacuum. It's written in a cultural context, cultural historical context, and it and it happens to take place in a patriarchal culture. But what I see happening is that um, when you get to Sinai and you have God's instructions to, to the Israelites as to how to live as a society, um, you see God giving lots of instructions that restrain the power of the patriarch and, and make sure that he's using it on behalf of others. As my mentor, Daniel Block, would say, uh, the Ten Commandments are a bill of rights but they're a bill of other people's rights. Mm, instead of instead of trying to uh, preserve the power of the landowner or the head of household, he's supposed to steward that power so that everyone in the household can flourish. So he's not allowed to covet his neighbor's wife. And on the Sabbath, it's not just the patriarch who gets to rest, but it's your, your children and your, your servants and your animals. Everyone gets a rest on the Sabbath. So that's restraining the patriarchal prerogative, if you will. Um, So I I see lots of evidence in the Old Testament that God is concerned to sort of uh, work against the abuse of power by, by, again, restraining the patriarch. So yes, it happens to have taken place in this kind of culture. Um, There's kind of two views out there on, on what to do with that. There's, okay, it happened in this culture, and this is an ideal culture, and we should try to emulate it, or it happened in this culture, and this culture is incidental, and we need to sort of see past it or through it to see what, how God works in that culture. We're not trying to mimic the culture. We're trying to see what are God's intentions that transcend culture. And so those are kind of the two basic approaches.
0: There, that's a great point that you made. And it makes me think just last week, I had a discussion on Facebook. Um, I I have a, a friends across the spectrum that have all kinds of beliefs. And and one of my Facebook friends is, is an atheist troll. He posts atheist Mm. memes and anti-religious memes. And, you know, these kind of gotcha posts that are supposed to shut down these, you know, superstitious believers and this and that. And it's, you know, I push back on some of them and he pushes back on some things that I post. And uh one of the things he posted though that really caught my attention and opened up a discussion in the comment section was he posted mm-hmm. the passage in numbers that talks about the rite the ritual that you go through when a man mm. declares that mm. his wife has been unfaithful and yep. there's a ritual that involves writing something on a scroll and then taking some dirt from the tabernacle floor and putting it in some water and then the woman drinks it And then Mm -hmm. whether she's guilty or not will be determined by the reaction to her drinking this mixture. And he posted that as if like, and the the tagline was, this is proof that the Bible is um, patriarchal because there's no test for unfaithful Mm -hmm. husbands. Uh, And it was a really interesting uh, starting point for a discussion because I said, actually, Let's back up a minute because I think you're missing a whole lot of stuff. Yeah. In in the ancient world, women who were accused of unfaithfulness had no recourse outside of Israel in other cultures and could be put to death just on the accusation alone. So in Israel, this is an example in Israel... Because adultery was a serious thing. it It jeopardized your inheritance rights and and family structures and community honor and shame and all of that. I mean, we just mm-hmm. see adultery mm-hmm. as kind of like haha, boys will be boys and marriages, yeah. whatever, consenting adults, but that's not how yeah. it is throughout the world, right? And so this right, what I, what I told him, I reminded him, I said, "Look, this is not an ordeal trial, like in other cultures, where we throw you in the river, and if you survive, it means you're innocent." Because that's putting you in a place where you're bound to experience an ordeal that you should not survive and the gods have to intervene to save you. This Mm -hmm. is the opposite of that. The mixture that the woman drinks, it's just water with some dust in it. So it's not harmful. It's not harmful. And if anything does happen and whether, you know, what the result is, is up to debates, everything from miscarriage to infertility to some kind of, you know, disease or something regardless though mm-hmm. god would have to supernaturally intervene to make that happen and render a yes. guilty verdict so there was yes. actually a built-in mechanism for reeling in uh, false witnesses that could yeah. literally end up in a woman's death and i so yeah. i shared that to say the whole point of this law was speaking into what we both agree is a patriarchal culture but mm-hmm. restraining some of the excesses of that culture, and I think the yeah. same for Leverett marriage laws or a mm-hmm. number of other laws that we today would complementary and egalitarian, everything <laughs> in between, would never want to reinstate uh, right. for theological and cultural reasons.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great example of how the law is meant to protect the vulnerable and to, you know, as you said, protect the woman from false accusations so that she can't be punished just on the basis of suspicion alone.
0: Yeah. And, and most people, obviously you, you, I don't have to tell you this, you know, this most people don't study Torah. Most Christians don't study Torah Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. any degree of of depth. If they do, they're kind of looking for hidden codes or spiritual meanings of every symbol and every law. And a lot of times don't take the time to actually just say, wait a minute, what would this law actually do in that context? And you What you're saying reminds me, if viewers haven't read it, a a fantastic resource that talks about this whole concept is William Webb's book, Slave Women Mm -hmm. and Homosexuals. It's about everything from sexual ethics to gender issues to the concept of slavery Mm -hmm. in the Bible, but he introduces The concept, I think, in an easy way to understand of the redemptive hermeneutic, where scripture Mm -hmm. is written, like you just said, into a culture, but scripture Mm -hmm. is pulling that culture along in a redemptive arc so that later in scripture, that's how you see things, what we would say progressing, although I don't like that term, moving towards redemption. And then when you get to Jesus, you kind of see a fuller revelation of what God desires. So is it, it, so that's, you know, if somebody said, well, Carmen, Joy, I'm, women don't lead in the Bible and that's the way God designed it.
1: (laughs) I would say, oh, really? You haven't been reading the whole Bible because there are so (laughs) many women who play important roles in scriptures. And for some reason, their stories are not, they're they're not taking center stage in our preaching and in our conversation. So I think of Miriam, who, um, who actually you know, she takes her stand by the Nile, watching over her baby brother, whose life is in danger, and then negotiates for him to be saved and to him, for him to have a wet nurse, uh, his own mother. Um, and then later in, in Exodus 15, Miriam takes her stand again. Uh, with the people of Israel on the shores of the Sea of Reeds, and they watch as God delivers them from Pharaoh's army. And it says it it says to us in in Exodus 15 that Miriam leads the people uh, in song. I think it's Micah chapter six that that refers back to uh, to her. It it, it talks about uh, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam led the people, and so she's. She's remembered as a, as a prophet and as a leader in Israel. We have Deborah in the book of Judges, who is a prophetess and leader of the people. She's judging the people. Uh, we have Huldah in the book of Kings. Uh, she's a really interesting example because this is when King Josiah has taken up uh, the throne and he's sponsored a uh, renovation cleanup of the temple. And they discover the Torah scroll that's been neglected for generations. And they're like, oh, no, what do we do? We've, we haven't been reading this. We haven't been doing this. We need to know what God is saying to us in this moment. And he lives during the days of Jeremiah, but he doesn't call for Jeremiah. He calls for Huldah. Uh, there's not a sense that, well, there weren't any men to go to, so they went to a woman. So it was kind of a special dispensation for uh, a time with no male leadership. No, they, they go to Huldah, even though Jeremiah right there in Jerusalem uh, and even though she's married, they don't go to her husband. They go to her and she declares the word of God and it, it sparks a national revival. Um, so uh, there are women leading in the old Testament as well yep, as in uh, the new Testament.
0: Second Kings twenty two fifteen. This is, she said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, yeah. Oh, the man, who sent you? This is what the Lord says, and and she's yeah. me, My uh, those of you watching, Accordance is being real buggy. That's why you're seeing the little pinwheel on the screen. <laughs> I could try to edit this out and us to redo that section, but you're seeing seeing how the sausage gets made here at Disciple. Dojo. <laughs> and hopefully, if somebody from Accordance is watching this, hey, tech support, let's get on this. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's uh, Second Kings twenty two if anybody wants to read this passage. So you have, yeah. you have Miriam in Exodus and mm-hmm. just, you said that passage, she takes her stand. Is is it the same mm-hmm. verb in both of those? That's a cool it's, insight so, from an Exodus scholar guys. Pay yeah. So, that.
1: so it's, it's the same verb for, uh, for Miriam taking her stand in chapter two and Moses taking his stand when he confronts Pharaoh, I think in chapter seven mm-hmm. by the Nile. And then it's all Israel who take their stand by the sea, but Miriam is among them. And I think we get Miriam again in chapter 15. It's important literarily because both times she's bearing witness to deliverance. And, uh, and so it connects the story of Moses' redemption with the story of Israel's redemption to have Miriam um, there on the shore in both scenes uh, leading. But it, again, she's called a prophet. Uh, here, And she's called a leader in Micah uh, in retrospect, and clearly is somebody who had an important revered role in the people mm-hmm. of Israel. Um, I mean, lots lo- lots, and lots of women we could talk about in the New Testament. Right. And, and here is where, you know, everybody be- takes a beeline to 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians <laughs> 14 when they want to talk about women's roles. Why aren't we beelining to Romans 16? where Mm -hmm. Paul lists all of the women co-workers that he uh, wants to greet as he writes to the Romans. And it is an incredible list of women who have sacrificed for the kingdom of God.
0: Let's pull, Um, I'm going to pull this list up up. Uh, We're Romans 16, everybody can see on the screen. I mean, he begins the list obviously with uh, Phoebe a deacon and,
1: and who's called a deacon. Mm -hmm. And then it, it, most scholars would would suggest that Phoebe is mentioned here first because she's the one delivering Paul's letter to the Romans to gonna, the church.
0: I'm going to pull and, up the Greek. I'm going to pull up Greek right beside it, so great. people can see if any New Testament folks want to really dive in. So there, dia, uh, yeah, diaconon, Phoebe, a deacon. Yep.
1: So it's the same word for deacons. Later, she's mm-hmm. uh, she's called a deacon and. She's been the benefactor of many people. She's like financially sponsoring mission work uh, ministry, and she and she carries the letter probably. And whoever would have read the letter in the assembly would have also then explained it and answered questions. So Paul's entrusting what what many consider to be his most important doctrinal treatise, his most yeah. important letter, um, to a woman to to deliver. And then he goes on to greet all kinds of other people, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla, we know, is a is a Bible teacher. She and her husband train Apollos and help him understand more completely the gospel. And Paul never says, now, Priscilla, you really ought to just be quiet and let your husband do the talking. No, he commends her here and he lists her name first before her husband's, which probably says something about her prominence. Mm-hmm. Um, they they also have a church meeting at their house. So they're house church leaders. Mm-hmm. Um in verse six, it says to greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Verse seven, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who've been in prison with me. Uh so these are this is a maybe a husband, wife, at least a man and a woman who've been imprisoned for gospel ministry. I I I joke with my students the other day. I highly doubt. That Junia was put in prison for making sandwiches. <laughs> I, you don't get imprisoned in the first century for working in the kitchen. You get imprisoned for preaching the gospel publicly. And so it seems very, uh, very likely to me that she's that she's doing something um, out in the streets publicly that would have gotten her um, captured. And mm-hmm. and then it says they are outstanding among the apostles. So there's two views on this. Either. All the apostles think Andronicus and Junia are just really the cat's meow? Or among all the apostles, including Andronicus and Junia, they they stand out. So this could be an example of a woman being called an apostle in the New Testament, depending on how you understand that sentence. Right. There's
0: some ambiguity there. There's an interesting do you, and of course you know that the history of, of Junia for yeah. a long time in some translations wasn't Junia. Junia feminine was Junias. And there are manuscripts yeah. where this was a masculine name, and they're all later manuscripts, meaning at some point somewhere a scribe said, "Wait a minute, outstanding we can't have that apostles. We can't have we can't a woman. have a
1: woman apostle. We gotta yeah. fix this."
0: So Junia became Junius, but it's it's and you can see the uh, Greek right here on the right hand side. It's uh, clearly is Junia, but there are some manuscripts where it was altered to Junius. Yeah. This yeah. is, this is a, one of those issues where Christians have to exegetically talk about what is this yeah. um, among the apostles? Cause this just the Greek word in, and is mm-hmm. it mean in as in among, does it mean in as in within or to, yeah. or kind of toward? Yeah. So yeah. there's, yeah.
1: And I just think there. it's striking that of all these women that Paul lists, and there's, a, there's several more uh, that I didn't mention that Paul doesn't say to any of them, hey, hold back stop doing what you're doing leave that to the men he's he's upholding all of them as his co-workers which is a word that he uses for his his fellow preachers of the gospel in other letters that he writes um so he paul has great uh, admiration and respect for his female co-workers i feel like paul's leaning into uh genesis 1 and 2 this idea of uh, a of an allyship with with women who are uh, fellow participants in ruling on, on God's behalf. And if any letter of Paul's were to lay out the the ground rules for ministry, I would think it would be Romans. Like, And what's striking to me, R- Romans is like his most prominent letter, and there isn't anywhere in the book where he's telling women what not to do. So I, I find that interesting. Like we've we focus so much on two passages that seem to be telling women what they can't do. And we miss the forest for the trees. Look at all of these women in Pauline circles who are uh doing ministry roles that some later in history have prohibited women from doing.
0: Yeah, there's there's question and, and we can we'll touch on this in a minute when we get to the the big two as I call them. Um mm-hmm that people usually go right to, but yeah. it's really important. And viewers, if you're kind of like, okay, we'll just get to the point, just get to you know, what about first mm-hmm. Timothy or what about it? It's, mm-hmm. I think what Carmen is doing is what we have to do, which is you have to say, what is your foundation that you're viewing the lens through which you're viewing mm-hmm. all of these passages. And yeah. Regardless of where you land on egalitarian, complementarian roles of women in ministry mm-hmm. in churches, you can clearly see that the idea that women in the Bible don't ever lead men mm-hmm. in any situation, that's just clearly not true. I mean, even yeah. if Deborah were the only example, even if there wasn't Huldah, mm-hmm. even if Miriam didn't uh, proclaim mm-hmm. and, and do what she did in the story with Moses— yeah. Even if you didn't have those, Deborah alone is enough. Deborah at the beginning of Judges, in the period where the judges were commendable, as yeah. we do in our study here at Disciple Dojo, when we walk through the book of Judges, with dark days yeah. in Israel's history, the mm-hmm. judges decline as you go forward in the book. But the judges at the beginning of the book are pretty much the judges that you know Israel was I guess they they're like the peak of the judges and then they go yep. downhill but right. Deborah is right there at the beginning and there's no yeah. hint that she's incapable of leading the people or mm-hmm. that they're following that it, her is yep. oh, they're just disobedient there no, no good I've heard no good men could be found so God had right. to use a woman Right and, and that's I where think, I
1: want to say like look at Hulda there's plenty mm-hmm. of men around he could have they could have asked and they yeah. asked Holda and God doesn't say, what do you think you're doing?
0: Yeah, yeah you, ha- you have to even a complimentarian has to admit that they when it comes to Deborah they they have to read that into the text whether it's yeah. true or not is a different question, but the text itself doesn't in any way rebuke or or condemn. Yeah. Deborah's leadership. And, and I think that's yeah. really important. Paul, when, when you ask, I think Scott McKnight said it, um, I think it was in Blue Parakeet, I think Scott McKnight, he said, instead of asking what can women do, you need mm. to start asking what did women do in the Bible mm. and see mm. what they did do first, and yeah. then interpret what they can do based on the passages that talk about what they did do. And in, yeah. you know, in Paul's ministry, women did, I showed it on the screen a minute ago, Trifena and Tryphosa, Persis, uh, Rufus's mother, they mm-hmm. were workers with him. They yep. labored with him. Junia yep. being in jail, uh, outstanding yep. among the apostles. So yeah, women yep. did, and we haven't even touched on Jesus's treatment of women. Right, and right. And the status and the the trust that Jesus shows To women which is completely contrary to how they were treated at that time
1: isn't it striking that jesus never gives instructions that limit women from doing anything
0: Mm.
1: like so we got two verses in paul that seem to do so but we have jesus with three years of earthly ministry and he had opportunities where he could have said no women this isn't a good place for you Um, but he allows women to travel with him provide for his needs he allows mary to sit at his feet learning from him like a rabbi and when she's when her sister says she should be in the kitchen uh jesus says no she's chosen what's right to to be my disciple and then and then i think what was maybe the first thing that just sort of knocked me off my feet uh as i was thinking about this issue was that was recognizing that all four gospels record for us that mary Magdalene was the first to see Jesus after his resurrection and that he commissioned her to bring the most important theological message in human history to his own disciples. He commissions her to to take the news. He could have done it himself. He could have gone to the disciples himself. He could have said, now Mary, keep this to yourself. It's not your place to be teaching my disciples something. But instead he entrusts it to her and she brings it back to to the disciples. And I just think that's a really beautiful thing.
0: Yeah. It's now, how do you, how are you going to respond? Because obviously someone would say, yeah, but the 12 disciples, they were all men. Like what? Because that's a very common thing that people note.
1: It is true that Jesus chose 12 male followers. I think in so doing he was reconstituting Israel like a new Israel around himself. So he's symbolically choosing the 12 uh, tribes again, but the the gospels are very clear that women traveled with him, that they were part of the disciples as he sent them out two by two to do gospel ministry, that the women are among them, that um, at the day of Pentecost, there are women present who begin prophesying, That um, at his ascension, there are women who are seeing him received from their sight. So women are witnessing the most important aspects of Jesus' ministry where he's commissioning them. All of us are supposed to go and make disciples, not just men. And so I I think it's important for us to recover this because there seems to be a sort of awkwardness or hesitance in the church that like, well, the women should just hang back and let the men do this. And right. I would argue, like, we need all, we need the whole body of Christ to do this, to carry out this commission well.
0: And so what, what you're saying and what you've said thus far, every, I think it's important to note, every thoughtful complementarian that I know would would agree and recognize uh, that, yes, women are called to be in positions, certain positions of leadership, And certain positions of teach, of course, to to teach the gospel and and to do all this. In other words, the complementarians at their best, which is how I always want to present any opposing view, because it's, you know, we could we could always point to some misogynistic, biblically illiterate, uh, just woman hating preacher telling women to be barefoot and get in the kitchen, this and that. but. I don't think that's the kind of people that would gravitate to Disciple Dojo to begin with. Sure. Um, and that would even be wanting to have these type of conversations. I think of the more mm-hmm. thoughtful um, people, complementarians who uh, people like, you know, like a, a Tim Keller or DA a. Carson, mm-hmm. or even here on YouTube, Mike Winger, people who, who they, they will say, yes, Carmen, I, I actually agree with mo- almost everything you're saying. And, and I, I see it there completely. Women have an active role to play in sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel in functioning in leadership roles. Mm
1: -hmm. The
0: inevitable, uh, place where we all end up though is, but there are these two passages that from Mm -hmm. our perspective are really clear that when it comes to women in leadership, there's just some things that they for whatever reason we don't really know why that they can't do. Yeah. And it gets us to the big two, First Timothy yep. and First so Corinthians. So we can look at those and which order would you like to take those in?
1: Let's let's do Timothy first. That's the one I hear the most often. Uh, you know, if I if I post a sermon online. <laughs> Get people in the comments saying hello, first Timothy 2.12, 12, as if that's like solves the whole debate. Um,
0: so we've got here uh, first Timothy, and it's chapter two. It, he gives in chapter two, verse eight talks about I want men to pray with holy hands, I want the women to dress modestly. Uh, I'm going to do a disciple dojo episode, I think, on what dressing modestly means because I think that's <laughs> very unknown. In terms of what paul was actually talking about and okay financial modesty much more than
1: okay that. yeah yeah yeah. Okay. but anyway
0: that's another issue for another time he goes in yeah. chapter 11 and says a woman in I V 2000 a woman should learn in quietness and full submission i do not permit a woman to teach or to and then it's this one greek word Which you can see on the screen over to your right. uh, My Greek pronunciation is not good, but Althaintain is what it looks Mm -hmm. like to me. It says, I do not permit a woman to Althaintain a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, I know some New Testament scholars. Not evangelical have just said this isn't even Paul at all. This is we don't even have to worry about this passage, this is a pseudo Paul or a later edition.
1: Mm, mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm.
0: but for somebody who is not willing to take a Thomas Jefferson approach and cut out passages in the Bible that <laughs> are inconvenient, which you're not, yeah. what do you do right. with this passage? Because it does seem pretty clear,
1: yeah. So, the the first thing I would want to say is. If we've been reading Paul carefully, at face value, this contradicts what Paul says in his other letters. Mm. Paul has in, in two ways, well, several ways. First of all, his gift lists when he when Paul lists uh, the, what the spiritual gifts are, you know, uh, prophecy, teaching, pastoring, all he none of his gift lists are gendered. He do, he never says, okay, here are the spiritual gifts for men and here are the spiritual gifts for women. Spiritual gifts are available to every member of the body of Christ. So so right off the bat that we need to remember that. But I think more pointedly, Paul tells women in Corinthians not to pray or prophesy in public unless their head is covered. So what this means is that in Paul's churches, women are publicly praying And publicly prophesying, and by publicly I mean they're in the 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 assembly of believers, probably in a house church, and they are prophesying. And Paul does not say, "Women, you can't prophesy." He says, "You have to have your head covered when you do it." And I've never seen someone try to prophesy silently. So what this seems to suggest is that women are talking; they are they're not uh, they're not quiet. But they're doing something that involves the public proclamation of the word of God to the people of God. We already mentioned in Romans 16 that Paul commends Prisca or Priscilla, who taught Apollos, uh, that he sends Phoebe with his letter to the Romans, which is a teaching role. Um, that, that he commends female co-workers who are in prison for gospel ministry, like Junia. So something is already like just as we approach this text there's already something that seems to be contradicting what Paul has already said and what he's already demonstrated. So that's why I would want to take a second look at this and say, what does Paul mean when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man? Because clearly he he expects that women are teaching and they're proclaiming the word of God, and he's okay with that. So this must be something else. So either... His instruction here is more specific in scope, like it's a certain kind of teaching that he doesn't want them to do, or he's addressing a particular problem in Ephesus that's not a problem in Corinth or other places where he's, or Rome, where where he's addressing other communities. So those are the two possible ways forward for me. And I think if you want to take scripture seriously, then you have to be able to reconcile what Paul says here with what he says elsewhere.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a that's a good point worth re-emphasizing. If any viewer didn't catch the importance of it, you, it's it's not about coming to let's say in Paul's writings, coming to Paul's writings, reading something we don't like, and just saying, "Well, I don't like that, so that can't be what he meant." And I don't, and that's yeah. not what Carmen is saying. No, I'm hearing her. It's not irre respect, I almost said irregardless, irrespective <laughs> of what uh our views are on what Paul is saying mm-hmm. we that doesn't that that's not the reason for there being a hey, wait, we need to take a closer no. look at this. The reason is what Carmen just said, we do see Paul commending women mm-hmm. and 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 we'll look at First Corinthians in a minute because it's another example yeah. where Paul seems to contradict what he said elsewhere. We yeah. do see women, not just in the early church, but even in the Old Testament, like Huldah, mm-hmm. like Miriam, yep. teaching and yep. exercising authority in any normal sense of the word to some degree over men. Yeah. So that is what gives co- uh, people who are not completely convinced of, of, of what would be a traditional complementarian reading. That's what gives people pause. It's not, well, yeah, yeah. I want to change this because I don't like it. Right, it's, right. Well, wait a minute, Paul's saying this here, but then he's doing this and saying this over here. Right. How do you reconcile those two things? And right. that's what I wish my complementarian friends would really take to heart. Disciple Dojo viewers, you may have heard in my Bible, study Bible reviews, uh, I'm I'm not a complementarian. I, I don't lean in that direction, but I'm also not fully on board with the egalitarian for the reasons that we've already cited here in this discussion. Mm-hmm. But I would like my complementarian friends to really hear this from, from both of us, and, and especially mm-hmm. for me, is it's not the unpopularity of what Paul is saying that makes me no. go, I don't think that's right. It's what he says elsewhere—it's what I call the right. counter witness. There's a right. counter witness right. at other points of Scripture, and you don't see that with other issues that get lumped in with women in ministry. That right. people say, "Well, if women can do this, then we might as well just disregard this, 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 and this." And I'm like, "Well, right. is there a counter witness in Scripture that would lead us right. to disregard right. it?" And so that's no, an important not. caveat. But go ahead, go ahead, <laughs> yeah. and um, let's dive back into. Mm. Did you, is there anything else in First Timothy? Do you have anything about authentain that word? Because this is—I know this is a unique word. It's not a normal word for to have authority. This Um, is the
1: only time this word appears in the Bible, and it's—it's a rare word outside the Bible. mm -hmm. Um, And probably so. There's there's two ways to take verse twelve. Is this a list of two things that a woman can't do, or is it a list of one thing? mm -hmm. So is it a woman can't teach and a woman can't authentain? Or is it a woman can't teach in a way that's authentic? Mm. Um, and so to, if, we, if we combine them, that's what's called in Greek grammar, a hendiades, where the, the expression is two things, but they're describing one thing. And many scholars feel that that's what's happening here. So this is not saying women can't teach at all, but women can't teach in a way that assumes authority in whatever way authentic is to be understood. So because it's a word that never appears elsewhere in the Bible, and it's a word that never describes, since it doesn't appear here, we don't have any examples in the Bible where men are told, you can authentine, but women can't. Um, we need to look outside the Bible, to so what, is, what does this word actually mean? How should we be defining it? And if you look outside the Bible, it denotes a, a violence or domineering uh, mode of being. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that um, that we focus so much here on what a woman can't do, without ever asking the question: Are men allowed to do this? And so, mm-hmm. Cindy Westfall, in her book *Paul and Gender*, argues um, n- men are also not allowed to teach with authority, with this kind of authority, with a violent, domineering kind of like a, an abuse of authority. Um, and she sees that that's what the the command is here: women cannot domineer over a man, she must be quiet. Well, what does that mean that she must be quiet? It can't contradict what Paul's already said women are doing in the congregation, like praying and prophesying, uh, serving as deacons. So it's just interesting to notice that if we go back up to verse two, both men and women, all believers are told to live peaceful and quiet lives. Mm. So whatever kind of whatever quiet means in verse 12, it's likely to also mean in verse two, that men are quiet and women are quiet in the way that they're conducting their affairs as believers. They're not stirring up trouble or they're not lording it over other people.
0: Yeah. it's it, You can see it on the screen. I, I'm highlighting the Greek in, in um, verse two. Yeah. It's that word, uh, mm-hmm. and it it means, yeah, it's peaceful or quiet. And so then when you come down to 212 here that women should be and there is the word right again, the feminine version of that. So, yeah, it's it's yeah. all of us should and, be this way.
1: So it so it can't simply mean authority in a neutral sense, like a woman can't teach with authority because what greater authority is there than prophecy? announcing the word of God to the people of God. And, mm-hmm. and women are doing this in Paul's churches. Again, he when he lists the spiritual gifts, including prophecy, he does not exclude women from that list. And in Corinthians, women are prophesying. And when they do th- so, they need to have their head properly covered. So they need to do so with modesty uh, defined in that cultural context. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't seem like it works to me to understand this as uh, just authority in general. Um, it, this seems to be a kind of domineering abuse of authority. And that's what Paul says women can't do. Now, the, the operative question next is like, well, why would a woman be doing this in Ephesus? Like, wh- what is the problem that Paul might be addressing? And here I've been really helped by the work of Sandra Glan, who did her dissertation on the Artemis cult in Ephesus, Artemis was the goddess who was worshipped in Ephesus, and she offered protection in childbirth. And so she was kind of like the focus of the women's lib of the ancient world. Um, and there were lots of myths associated with Artemis that were passed around, circulated among women. And and women thought that if they worshipped Artemis, then they would be safe in childbirth. They would they would uh, either because they're restraining from sexual activity or because or because um, Artemis is keeping them safe through the process of childbirth, which is the most dangerous endeavor for a woman in the ancient world is giving birth. And, and so, even in
0: the modern world, too, in most places, it's still sure, sure. one of the most yeah. leading causes of mortality.
1: So in, in chapter 2, verse 15, where it says women will be saved through childbearing, th- this is a notoriously difficult verse. Uh, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Uh Sandra Glon as well as Cindy Westfall would suggest that um, this is specifically countering a myth that was circulating related to the Artemis cult. That like, no, 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 don't don't teach these domineering women's lib messages that you're getting from the the cult of Artemis. And if you leave those aside, um You can trust God that he's going to keep you safe through childbearing. Like, you don't need to go to her to get your safety in childbirth. God is is going to save you. Now, this doesn't mean every single woman will never experience trouble in childbirth. But, like, Artemis is not the right place to go for protection. God is the one who brings protection through childbearing. So that's one way to understand this. Others have said, oh, a woman is saved through childbearing because Mary gave birth to Jesus and Jesus became you know so so women are participating in God's work of redemption so they have a role um that's another way to understand it but i i'm i'm currently persuaded by the artemis um suggestion i think i think that makes sense
0: well contextually and background wise the artemis approach makes a ton of sense and i i think people have said well it's referring to the fact that you know well, I know Ben Witherington has said, because mm-hmm. it doesn't say women will be saved through childbearing in general, because the article, mm-hmm. it has the definite article, it says the childbearing. And you can see it right here. Taste Okay. okay. Uh, and, and that there may be, maybe some, I, I don't see those as mutually contradictory things. Um, I, I think that that's, that the, I think it can still be distinguishing itself from the Artemis cult and mm-hmm. saying I, paul is mm-hmm. more than capable of of multivalent meanings and puns and wordplays sure. and and some sure. ambiguity for rhetorical reasons and sure. i think that those two views could possibly coalesce but but i do it seems given the background that that two points one is that the the artemis background is incredibly important Kn- knowing the background of these ancient cities mm-hmm. when we're reading the letters yeah just shed so much light on it and because Mm -hmm. paul wasn't writing a treatise on gender ethics you know he was dealing with issues in this church uh that he was charging timothy to oversee the other point that i want to make and i've pulled it on the screen um alfanteo or alfanteo i pulled up the B D A G entry and the the definition folks can see they give is to assume a stance of independent authority, give orders, dictate to. And mm-hmm. accordance glosses, when they gloss Althantane, they gloss it with uh, domineering. And mm-hmm. so what what Carmen is saying, those of you watching this, it's not just like mm-hmm. making stuff up. I mean, these are recognized lexical meanings of these words and the fact that this does not appear. you have to look it up in the ancient literature outside yeah. of scripture. And you can see I'm I'm showing on the screen, if you're interested, here are the other passages outside of scripture where this
1: mm.
0: not very common word is used. So it, mm-hmm. all of this, I think the takeaway from all of this for viewers, before we move on to First Corinthians, I think a key takeaway is mm. you have to slow down and you ha- you can't just read one. You can't read one translation only. Read this in the English, mm-hmm. uh, in the NIV, read it in the ESV, read it in uh, Super Literal, tra- Young's Literal Translation, or something really wooden in ASB. Uh, read it in something like New Living Translate. Because what that will do is it will give you a range of mm-hmm. ways that this passage can actually be translated. And yeah. I think that's the first step in saying, okay, let me put my assumptions aside of how I'm reading this and let me Mm -hmm. listen to it with fresh ears. Um, so we let, is there anything else before we jump to first Corinthians that you would have to say about the Timothy passage?
1: Yeah, I think we, I think we better talk about Eve's deception. Um, because, because a lot of people would say, um, well, verse thirteen and fourteen, verses thirteen and fourteen, tells us why women can't teach mm-hmm. because they're so gullible. Women are mm-hmm. just naturally gullible. Uh, it says, "For Adam was formed first, and, and then Eve." So some would say, "See, this prohibition is rooted in creation; goes all the way back to creation, so it's timeless. It's not culturally bound." And Adam was not the one deceived; it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So, he, I. I take this, uh, this passage, uh, along with Cindy Westfall and others, as a command from Paul to let women learn. So the NIV says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And we often spin this section to be what a woman can't do. But Paul is is one if Paul is addressing the cult of Artemis and the myths that are in circulation by women who've been taught by the cult of Artemis and they're spreading this heresy? Here, Paul is saying, "No, I want women to learn in the church. I want women to to receive from the Word of God, and she can't domineer the the men who have who have this have been entrusted with this teaching. She can't domineer over the church." Um, and, and then he gives the reason why a woman must learn, what must be allowed to learn. So here, this, this kind of will flip the Adam and Eve thing on its head.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some, some understand this as, okay, Adam was formed first and then Eve. We saw that in Genesis 2. What that means is that only Adam heard God's direct command not to eat from the tree. Eve wasn't formed yet when God gave that command. So she got the command through Adam. So this is saying, when it says Adam was not the one deceived, it could be suggesting Adam wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't tricked by having false information. He had it straight from God. His sin, he can't blame his sin on having been mistaught. Mm -hmm. He actually had high-handed sin, like he was outright rebellious to the word of God. Mm Because he had heard God's command directly. Eve was deceived. She was able to be deceived because she lacked direct instruction. So Paul doesn't want this to keep on happening over and over again. He wants women to learn directly, not just, you know, hearing things secondhand, but hearing hearing them directly. So that's a that's I think an interesting way of reading this passage that fits better with what Paul says elsewhere.
0: And what's radical naturally
1: women are not naturally more gullible. The reason Eve was gullible is because she lacked instruction. So Paul's saying let women learn.
0: Which is contrary to both, I believe at the time first century Jewish practice and Mm Greco-Roman practice was that women Mm -hmm. weren't to learn, certainly not in mixed company, certainly not in some gathering like this.
1: Yeah, so this is this is radical for Paul in that he's making space for women to be disciples, just like Jesus made space for Mary to be his disciple, mm-hmm. sit at his feet and learn from him. Mm-hmm.
0: The, uh, for if anybody wants to Unpack this a little bit more in a similar way. I know NT Wright's New Testament for Everyone series. Mm-hmm. His um, on the pastoral epistles, he has a great section on this passage in particular, including nice. his the way he translates it. Uh, I encourage people to check that out. But that's yeah, that's nice. a great point because this does get preached a lot. As you know, you you women, you're so easily deceived. Of course, you can't yeah. teach. Yeah, and yeah, and and
1: maybe this is just a good time to mention that I grew up in a complementarian context. We mm. had, um, we had uh, the church that I attended only had male elders, deacons, and pastors. We were, uh, like, I-, I was fully okay with this. I felt like I, our goal, our job is to be faithful to God's word, and this is what God's word teaches. So let's be faithful to it. And it wasn't until I got to Bible college when one of my professors sat me down and said, Hey, Carmen, I've noticed you in class. And I wonder if you'd be willing to be a Bible studies lab instructor uh, under me. And I said, is that biblical? Cause that would mean teaching Bible to men. And I, I was pretty sure the Bible didn't allow that. And I wasn't interested in being unfaithful to scripture. I, I wanted to take scripture seriously. And so he sat me down and he walked me through all of these texts, like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And I walked out of it, of there and went I think actually it would be faithful to scripture for me to teach the bible mm-hmm. um and I, you know I felt like I was gifted to teach and like the thing I loved was the bible and so that's I can what affirm I to teach, but I uh, I didn't want to do it to if I was unfaithful <laughs>
0: <Thank> <laughs> No I yeah I can affirm you are definitely gifted to teach and and I think it's because of that attitude that you just said it's you it's mm-hmm. not like you were want, you're wanting to teach the Bible to men and put men in their place. And you've got to no. find a way to argue for you being able to teach. It was like, you actually had to, a man had to tell you, Hey, you have a gift. You for can this. actually
1: do this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's actually, yeah, helped. I wasn't,
1: I wasn't at all interested in doing it if it meant disobeying scripture. And I became convinced that actually the, 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 Bigger vision of Scripture is one in which men and women partner together in gospel ministry, including teaching. Mm-hmm. And it's been it's been a very blessed journey. But I, as I mentioned earlier, I have so many young women coming to me and saying, "So, you're a woman, and you teach Bible. How do you make sense of these passages?" And that's why I hoped that we would have mm-hmm. this conversation, because um, because I'm explaining it over and over and over again in my office, and I would love to be have a resource to just send people and say, "Here, look." Here's how I understand these passages. It's not meant to be the final word. I'm in process myself. I'm always learning new things. Um, this isn't even my area of specific research. So there are other people who can give you better and stronger arguments. Um, but these are the conversations I'm having regularly.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's hugely beneficial. And I think this conversation is beneficial to both egalitarian and complementarians. Mm-hmm. That's the, mm-hmm. what I want to yeah, stress. is yeah. This is not a... Hey, we're we really are wanting to unpack and explore these issues in, yep. with with care and exegetical yep. precision. Yep. Well, let's let's jump to First Corinthians because we've mentioned it a couple of times. Let's look at First yep. Corinthians fourteen, and in particular, Paul's giving advice about basically order in worship, mm-hmm. and he's talking about speaking in tongues and prophesying, but particularly speaking in tongues are in 14 around the verses 20 or so. And then he says, uh, verse Verse 29 to 30. Yeah. And depending on how your Bible breaks this up, this is an issue we've Mm -hmm. talked about in Bible for the rest of us. Different translations break this paragraph in different places. Mm -hmm. But verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And the old NIV actually right here put a period and then the new paragraph Ah. said, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent. The new NIV 2011, which is what's Mm -hmm. on screen, put the period after, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, new paragraph, Mm. women, and they note that this could also be the word for wives, should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the lowercase law says in the early NIV 1984 that law was uppercase. Oh, so interesting. they've made two changes that that are pretty significant, interpretive mm-hmm. changes, just between editions of the NIV. Um mm-hmm. uh, but what what do you do? Because again, Carmen, 1434 is pretty clear, you know, <laughs> when you're in church at least right now you're not in church. You're in your office and and maybe a classroom, so that's fine. But once you get in church, you gotta be once again, you got to be silent. Yeah. So, how do yeah, we, and I, what do we do with this?
1: I think we've we've already sort of uh, walked to this road with the other passage, and it's many of the same the same steps we need to take. So, his injunction for women to re, to be quiet suffers from the same internal contradictions as 1 Timothy two twelve. Mm-hmm. He's already encouraged modesty for women who are praying and prophesying in the assembly. So clearly, they're not quiet. If by quiet we mean zip your lip and just listen. Um, He, again, in Romans, commends women who hosted and led house churches, who taught, who presumably preached, and that's why they were imprisoned for it. Um, And his gift lists are not gendered, and they include speaking roles. So it it doesn't seem to make sense of what Paul says elsewhere to take this at face value that women cannot speak. So here, the most plausible solution to me, and this is the one that my professor sat sat me down and told me uh, 25 years ago, is that Paul is actually quoting his opponents and then trying to refute them or responding Mm -hmm. to them. There are no quotation marks in Greek. And so throughout the book of Corinthians, which everyone agrees, is a letter where Paul is addressing lots of problems. The the Corinthian church is riddled with issues, and he continues to quote them and say, hey, you're saying this, but I tell you, uh you need to do things this way but it's tricky because we have no quote marks in greek so you have to contextually figure out when is paul speaking himself and when is he saying quoting maybe from a letter that they sent to him and then re- and then responding it's like it's like uh, an email correspondence where you inserted your answers within someone's email, mm-hmm. but then the the there's no font difference and there's no color difference. And so you, you could read it later and not know who's talking when. Right. And that seems to be what perhaps what's going on in Corinthians. So this is one solution that's been suggested. Lucy Peppiat wrote, uh, I think, her dissertation on this Um and so she has a couple of books out. The, the more academic one is making a, a, an extended case that this is a quotation of Paul's opponents that he is then responding. So they are trying to silence women. And he says this is unprecedented. So, uh, so verse thirty on this reading, verses 34 and 35 are Paul's opponents speaking. And then Paul responds in verse 36. Did the word of God originate with you? Hmm. Are you the only people it's reached? If anyone thinks they are the prophet or otherwise gifted by the spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. Like, you guys are just making stuff up. Be, you know, mm-hmm. let go of it is is kind of how she reads this. Mm. So they are guilty, if if this is correct, they're guilty of caving to cultural norms and pressures rather than recognizing the work of the spirit in their midst.
0: Mm.
1: So because his entire letter is addressing these problems, it seems to me that uh, this is worth, uh, this is a solution worth considering.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: a- another solution I heard more recently is Philip Payne uh, has done a lot of work on this passage in in t- uh, different manuscripts. So Greek manuscripts, there are little notations that indicate that these two verses may have been marginal notes that later got stuck into the text. Mm-hmm. And so, again, whether someone was trying to quote Paul's uh, interlocutors or whether somebody was later disagreeing with Paul um, it is unclear. And I'm not sure what I think about the text-critical argument, um, but That's, that, that research is out there.
0: I, and and um, he just passed away, but Gordon Fee was an advocate, yeah. I believe, of this whole section being a later edition, being a textual, mm-hmm. uh, scribal, marginal note that was incorporated. Yeah. I have read arguments for that. And then I've read the arguments against that, that know this is actually yeah. the, that is te- what, unless you are a text critical scholar, people watching this, those are the type of arguments that you just aren't equipped to evaluate because they really do come down to very technical, uh, almost like material science studies right. in some cases. And they require yeah. a lot of training. So it's, I, I would just beware of, putting any undue emphasis on a text-critical argument when it's something like this, because I'm they, 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 not saying don't, just saying beware, because yeah. you can't make a slam dunk case one way or the other when it comes mm-hmm. to some issues of text criticism. Yeah. But it is yeah. definitely worth noting mm-hmm. because it shows you where there may have been uh, some, over church history, there may have been some wrestling with certain passages yeah. and that results in different traditions. Yeah. How do you take uh I have I've been big on this as an Old Testament teacher and I as somebody yeah. you are an expert in the law being that is your <laughs> primary area of study, I take when Paul if if this is Paul, let's say for the sake of argument if Paul is saying yeah. um he's not quoting but he's saying as okay. the law says. Yep. I yeah. don't think there's any way you can say that he's using namas as Torah in this case, because there is no law in Torah anywhere that says anything about women being in submission. Or
1: or or being silent. Yeah. I don't know anywhere in the Torah where it talks about that. Um, So so the law he's referring to, if this is Paul speaking, um, he's referring to some kind of current you know law of his time maybe mm. a a convention in that's that's arisen in the churches in the early churches a principle
0: um, or a, a, a norm yeah. a social norm yep. sure,
1: yeah sure sure and and so it's interesting it, i i don't feel personally like i have like i'm th- this one seems a little harder to be sure about the solution than mm. timothy does to me mm-hmm. however I'm just as sure as with Timothy that this contradicts other things Paul says if you just read it at face value. And because I want to take all of Paul seriously, I don't feel like I can just conclude women have to be silent. Paul has just talked about um, what to do when prophets are speaking in church and elsewhere he says how women should do that. And so I don't see how we can take that as silence, like actually just not talking at all.
0: And this, this is a crucial point that, again, I would like my complementarian friends to really sit with because somebody is going to very easily say, okay, Artemis called uh, text criticism, quoting from Corinthian norms. You're just reaching to get around the plain meaning of this passage. And, and to that, I would say, okay, fair enough. But if I take the plain meaning of this passage then I have to do the same reaching in other passages where women are speaking Mm -hmm. and teaching. So both sides have to bring in other stuff or have to do the common put down exegetical gymnastics. Both sides have to do that because you have scriptures that seem to be in tension with each other. So I I do get tired. I I say get tired of, I, I get exasperated with some of my my complementarian friends who act as if all of the tension and all of the ambiguity and everything is on the non-complementarian readings and Mm -hmm. they're just Mm -hmm. reading the text Yeah, because i I think to me i'm like all right now you're starting you're either uninformed or dishonest because we both have to explain some passages in more than just their plain surface level reading Yeah. These aren't the only passages, obviously, but these are the big two. Um, These are the
1: clobber. I call these the clobber passages. (laughs) Mm. These are the two that people use to shut down an argument or to Mm. shut down a woman who's trying to offer uh, biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. And so I think they are the most important to talk about, but not until we've laid the groundwork from the other passages we've talked
0: about. Well, the question, so this is how I see somebody watching this following along, who's, who's, who is complementarian, uh, unapologetically and thoroughly yeah. evangelical. I imagine them following along saying, I agree that we can't take those two passages at face value. And I agree mm-hmm. that one, women don't have to be silent in church. We all agree Paul's not being literal because women can mm-hmm. teach Sunday schools, Because women can, can
1: women sing. Women <laughs> ministry, they can
0: sing. They can make <laughs> announcements. Okay, so we all agree. There's a degree of non-literalness going on here. Yeah. And I can also see people saying, um, and I agree that women should be able to learn and and that they aren't, they shouldn't domineer, they shouldn't authentain, you know, wrestle authority, yep. uh, whatever yep. that word means. We're all on the yep. same page. Yep. But thoughtful complementarians, of whom I know many, and I look up to many of them, they will mm-hmm. say, where I have to draw the line is, is I just see that there, when Paul does speak to what elders should be, teaching elders, mm-hmm. that... He uses only masculine uh, verbs or concepts. He 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 talks. He he only seems to give men that office. And so no, not when we're talking about gifting, but when mm-hmm. we're talking about office. The office of elder sure. is yeah. where they. That's kind of the. That's to me. That's like you can get complementarians and egalitarians can get really close but at the end of the day it's like that's the line that does separate the two camps and yeah. so what what do what do you do with that what do we do with that as believers and as students of scripture
1: yeah good question so it's 1st timothy 3 that people often point to um which is directly following the passage we just looked at Um, That gives a list of qualifications for overseers, sometimes translated elders, and then for deacons. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of things I would want to say first. One is that Paul often uses ministry metaphors that are feminine. He talks about so it's not true that Paul only refers to leadership roles using masculine language. Okay. Um, I think Cindy Westfall makes a really compelling point of this in her book *Paul and Gender*, where he she she points to passages where Paul thinks of his himself and his own ministry like a nursing mother, hmm. um, and mm-hmm. and he uses feminine language for the way that he's nurtured the church. Mm -hmm. And so that, so that seems to say that Paul doesn't think femininity is incompatible with church ministry or leadership. Um, The other thing she points out that I found helpful is that ministry titles in the, in the new Testament are all servant status titles. Mm -hmm. So we have in our minds, a clear hierarchy with elders and deacons or overseers and deacons. Mm -hmm but but the word deacon is a word that means servant not leader and so she would argue that there are no technical terms for ministry roles by the time of the New Testament that it's later in history that we have elder and deacon as like official offices right um and and there's no reason to exclude women from a role that is a a servant role, right? Because we're all told to serve one another in love. And so that's another point she makes that I, I found really helpful. And then Lucy Pepiat, uh, in her book, took me through First Timothy 3. And I was a little flabbergasted to learn that there aren't any masculine words to describe elders. Hmm. Um, there's just one phrase that becomes the sort of litmus test or the the linchpin of the argument and that is um in the niv it's translated faithful to his wife so the niv has now the overseers to be above reproach faithful to his wife and in heat mm-hmm. in in greek it's he's to be a one woman man
0: mm-hmm. and that's so that's literally people can see on the screen this is the Greek of this phrase, and it's literally, there's the word, mias, one, "gynaikos" woman, andra, man, a one-woman man. That's what it actually literally says in Greek.
1: So this debate, uh, d- people divide on the issue of whether women can be elders really based on how they respond to this phrase. Is this saying that only a man can be an elder and that he has to be married? Like James Michael, you're not married, so you do you not qualify as an exactly. elder? Or does this mean if a man is married, he can, he has to be faithful to that woman, to that wife? Or if a man is unmarried, he's he's sexually uh, pure, chaste. like yeah. he you know he's chaste. Um, and so would that make you a one woman man if you're single and chaste? Uh, th- that would be a one way to read it. I've heard people uh, who say. If a man is married and he's an elder and his wife dies, he has to step down from the role because he's no longer he no longer has a woman uh at his side and then I've heard others who say no no you can be single and be an elder but if you if your wife dies you can't remarry or if if you're, you can't get a divorce and remarry, or you can't have an affair, like there's lots of different ways of parsing out what it would mean to be a one woman man. So then the question is, is this phrase then transferable? Is the reverse also true? Could you say a one husband woman? Right. Um, or is it gender specific? So if if I am faithful to my husband, am I qualified to be an elder because I'm a one woman man? In right. the female sense, right. or is this gender specific? So that's where the debate falls out over, um, over the elder role. Mm-hmm. But if you if you look through the Greek words used in this chapter, Lucy Pepe, I, I haven't taken the time to to do it in detail, but Lucy says none of these, except for that one phrase, are specific to men.
0: I mean, I'm just glancing at the Greek right now, and um, there seems to be yeah, there seems to be a lot of uh, both but words and concepts that could apply to both genders except that one woman man or one yeah. wife husband one wife man yeah. and that that is a point again worth pressing for viewers that are watching this is mm-hmm. if you if you really push for literalism you run into absurdities mm. in the sense that um Jesus was not married, so Jesus, <laughs> Jesus couldn't, what, be an elder. couldn't
1: be an elder. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. Any any pastor that's unmarried is technically not a one woman man. Uh, in this, sense. so you again, mm-hmm. once again, it's not. And who,
1: and who is writing this letter? I think it's Paul, and Paul's not married.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: so is Paul yes. not elder qualified?
0: <laughs> yeah. Or so. Yeah. The, so the question comes down to: Do you take this at face value, which then leads to this kind of literal uh, contradictory kind of absurdity that we get into? Or is it like when Jesus says, if anyone, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Uh, when, When masculine language is used with gender neutral connotations yep. the the in proverbs
1: sense. Yeah. yeah
0: proverbs is being written from a father to a son but yet women proverbs applies to women as well you just have to yeah. make the gender swap in the sense yep. of okay apply this to the other gender and switch whatever you need to because the principle mm-hmm. in in first timothy the principle is faithfulness yes. not marriedness Yes, I, I would yes. argue as somebody yeah. who is yeah. not married, I would make that argument. Yeah. And I would think yeah. your burden of proof would be on somebody yeah. to prove that marriedness and, and monog- married to one woman mm-hmm. ha- is the prerequisite. I, I think that's, mm-hmm. I don't think the text can bear that out.
1: Yeah. And another, another argument that the complementarian side offers on this passage is that we know that elders are supposed to be men because... In verse eight, we get instructions for deacons. And then in verse 11, we get instructions for women who mm. seem to be female deacons. Like many take that as the women who serve in, in a deacon role, Here's here are some specific instructions for her mm-hmm. or for them. So, so I've heard the argument that only men can be elders because and but women can be deacons because we have a male and female version of deacon, but we only have one version of elder. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a possible way to read this passage.
0: Um, well and and let me I will push back on that position uh, what I would push back with immediately is in verse 12, a deacon is also required to be a ah. one woman man. And we know that Phoebe and others were deacons. Hmm. Like we know that women were deacons and even complementarians recognize the office of deaconess.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, in 312, deacons, and there it is, the Greek right there, are to Mm -hmm. be one woman man. So if a deacon, which does include women, can be a one woman man, then I would look at that and go contextually and exegetically, Deacons can be one woman man and be a woman. Why not overseers or elder, episcopate, yeah. bishops, whatever you want to translate that word as. I, that's that's to me the biggest yeah. key that one woman man is an idiom, mm-hmm. not a mm-hmm. literal uh, description.
1: That's a really interesting point. I, I have very vivid memories of my childhood and in our complementarian church where there were only male deacons, elders, and pastors. Um I remember the debates about whether women could be deacons. They were that, that I was in the Christian Reformed church and this is in the eighties. And I remember them debating whether, whether that should be a, a change should be made. And it was interesting because we had a good friend who was female, who was a, uh, her name was being put forward as, hey, let's have her be the first deacon. But my grandfather was the one standing up at meetings, arguing against women being deacons because he wanted to remain faithful to the word of God. And I was so proud of him. And I was so glad he was speaking the truth. And so I felt a little bit caught in the middle because I liked her, uh, but but I felt like my grandpa was right. And so just interesting to be revisiting this question again now.
0: Well, it doesn't it doesn't break down along gender lines it mm. when, when a few years ago when i was on the alumni committee at gordon conwell we had a symposium a, a debate between on, on the subject and you can find it on youtube i'll put a link in the video description mm. if anybody wants to watch it because it was a fascinating discussion can women lead men and it was a, sub, a debate mm. on complementary now gordon conwell mm. is uh, you know interdenominational. we have complementarian professors we have egalitarian professors so we as the alumni committee invited an egalitarian who was male, and the mm-hmm. complementarian was from an alumni who was female. Mm-hmm. So we had, because we wanted to be very specific that this does not just break down among men telling women what to do and women asserting nope. their rights, but nope. it's a theological discussion. And like you said, being proud of your grandfather, I think you're, you mm-hmm. were right to be proud of him based on what mm-hmm. you believed and knew at the time, because. Yeah he was, and, and in his eyes and in the eyes of faithful complementarians, mm-hmm. defending what they believed was the correct word of God uh, yeah. interpretation. And I think that is commendable. Yeah. I really do yeah. admire that among thoughtful, generous, and, and competent complementarian colleagues.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, what both sides share in this conversation, at least, is a commitment to scripture as the word of God. Yes. And sometimes I see people saying, people egalitarians, I've heard say that if you're an inerrantist, then you are a complementarian and inerrancy and complementarianism are connected. And so if you let go of an inerrancy, you can get rid of complementarianism. And I want to say, no, I know lots of egalitarianism. I know lots of egalitarians who are also inerrantists because to be a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, you have to be, you have to be willing to sign off on inerrancy. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and lots of my friends are, are members and are saying things that would fit under the egalitarian umbrella, even if I don't like the term. So I have many brothers and sisters in Christ who do not land where I do on women preaching or women teaching, but I have great respect for them because we both hold the Bible to be the word of God. And it's our, our ultimate guide, uh, for life and faith.
0: I I could not amen that more loudly. And it, and it needs to be complimentary and friends, please hear this as well, because as somebody who's I'm, you know, was United Methodist, um, and that was the default in our church was, well, we don't believe that whole stuff about women in ministry because, you know, the Bible, we don't, we don't take it literally. And I'm just like, time out. No, absolutely not. And you know, me, That's
1: not. That is not how we get there.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, that's what I point him to Ben Witherington, my friend Ben Witherington. I'm yeah. like, hey, Methodist, you know, believes in scripture, authority, inspiration, is an egalitarian. Yeah. Listen to him if you, because that's not true. We do take yeah. scripture seriously. And we don't, it doesn't entail a compromise on sexual ethics as is commonly retorted that if you, uh, I think it, well, I won't name names, but I think it was a very high level uh, leader in evangelicalism that said, once you jettison Complementarianism, you inevitably go into uh, theological liberalism, and I I just could not publicly said that is that is slanderous and it's not true. My friend, mm-hmm. um, another Methodist friend, wrote Matt O'Reilly did a whole video on that, saying mm-hmm. that is just slander. You are slandering yeah. your brothers and sisters in Christ who are yeah. committed to the authority of Scripture, and it's like you yeah. and I have done in this discussion my views on gender and gender roles in ministry come from a close reading of the original language of scripture and contextual study, not from what's socially fashionable or politically expedient in the modern world.
1: Believe me, I'm not nearly as socially fashionable as some of my close family members would like me to be. So yes, this is not a slippery slope, um, as much as some people would like it to be.
0: Yeah, I I don't see it as a slope at all. I think it's a different issue. If it's a slope, it's on a different mountain. Um, It's just not. Now, I do want to ask because we, I think, you know, we want to we want to bring this back around, and we're coming up right around two hours. Some people will say they they will link together. We've been talking about what women can do ministry wise. Some Mm -hmm. people, a a big part of the complementarian uh, ethos is Mm -hmm. it's not just about ministry. It's about marriage and gender roles and husband and wife and complementarianism sometimes or egalitarianism sometimes, again, can just be uh, siloed off into these two completely different views. But I see them as overlapping issues, Mm -hmm. your view of Mm -hmm. what women can do ministry-wise and your view of what a marriage husband and wife relationship should be i don't see those as the same thing i think there's some overlap but i think yeah. there's also room for discussion so this is i know that's not the purpose of this discussion per se but do you have we would be remiss to not at least touch on that concept sure
1: yeah i i find myself slightly less interested in this question mm-hmm. um i think because uh it doesn't affect our corporate life together, and every couple ends up working out what it's going to look like. And I've known lots of people who say they're complementarian, who function at a very egalitarian way in their marriage, mm-hmm. and others who would say they're egalitarian, but clearly one member or the other rules the roost. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so I I think practically speaking, this probably comes down more to personality than to uh, and temperament than to theology, mm-hmm. to be honest. But I do th- I, I do think it's worth talking about. Um, so I would say Ephesians five is the passage that um, is kind of the go to for hierarchy and marriage. And Ephesians five twenty one says, "Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your own husbands, as to the Lord." Uh, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Um, it, we we could go on uh, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Um, it, that's probably enough of it to lay the foundation. It seems to me clear that this is um, flowing out of a mutual submission in verse 21, mm-hmm. that believers are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul goes on to describe what is this going to look like in marriage And I think we often come to this and see, oh, Paul is putting women in their place. But what seems what what I think is important for us to understand is that women were already in that place in the Roman world. There's nothing radical about what Paul says to women to submit. The radical thing is that he's asking men to lay their lives down for their wives. Mm -hmm. And he's attributing to the women moral agency so that they're already submitting. But now, as they submit, they're doing so to the Lord, and so and I'm getting this from Lynn Kohick in her recent commentary on Philippians for the Story of God commentary series, which is just fantastic. And she has, um, she has thoughts in Philippians, but then uh, the the Nicot, her, her sorry, not Nicot, it's the New Testament. New International I, I Commentary on the New Testament, <laughs> however you say that, however you new system people say that. Um, she has a Ephesians commentary there, and, and, and that's where this is coming from. So she talks about how women and slaves in this passage, because it goes on to talk about children and slaves as well, um, are recognized as moral agents whose behavior matters spiritually. So for somebody who... Uh, who whose agency has been taken from them by just doing what they're told? This is this is healing that resolving that and saying, no, your how you conduct yourself matters. So Paul is actually elevating the moral agency of these people. The other thing Kohik points out is that um, we tend to ignore the role that women plays the w- women play in the rest of this household code. So we think of husbands and wives and there's a submission rule here. And then we go on and we think the rest is about male authority, but children obey your parents includes father and mother. So in this pair, children and parents, women are on the top. Uh, of course, also ch- some children are women. So mm-hmm. they're a top or bottom. And then same with slaves, slaves obey your earthly masters. This is not just uh, male and female slaves obey men, but, There are men and women who are heads of households who had responsibility for slaves. And you have men who are slaves as well as women. So this is the household code code is not like a across the board. Men always lead and women always follow. There's all kinds of different relationships in which the, the the roles reverse. And I think that's more like real life. You know, I think of uh, at my previous institution, we had a board member who had an office on campus, and he was a full time volunteer at the school, as well as being a board member. So he was my boss because he was on the board. But he also volunteered with the program that I oversaw, so I was his boss for that program. Right. And my husband also worked for him part time, so he was my husband's boss. And then is my husband my boss? Like, like <laughs> we we have. All, we had all these different overlapping spheres of authority, yes. and, and yeah. I, I, that's just normal, and that's fine. Like, you're on one committee, and you're leading the committee, and you're on another committee, and you're being led, um, or you're doing what the committee tells you. Hmm. So I think uh, that my takeaway from Lynn Cohick's commentary is that social hierarchies were far more complex than what we often assume in the first century, um, there's a new book that I contributed to that just came out that Lynn Kohick also contributed to called The Biblical World of Gender. And I think that offers a good entry point because it talks about a, all, all sorts of different places in scripture where we need to think well about gender in, in, in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Nije Gupta is doing good work in this area right now along with Lynn Kohick. I heard Nijay on a podcast recently where he said 30% of property in the Roman world was owned by women.
0: Hmm.
1: So we think of men being doing all the leading and women doing all the following, but that's actually right. not the case in the Roman world. It's we, you know, we have Lydia who's head of household. We have Andronicus and Junia who have a, a, a church meeting in their home. So I think that, yes, Paul talks about submission, wives submitting to your husbands, but it's part of this very complex world of social relationships in which the way we respond to each other is an act of worship to God at the same time.
0: I think that that is absolutely correct. I, To me, the key in this passage, one of the keys I think that that before we finish up, I want to highlight too, is mm-hmm. some readers may not know that the verb submit is not in verse 522. Right, uh, you can right. see on screen as you're reading along in the Greek over here in the English, 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ some translations put a whole new paragraph here. And then like the NIV says, wives submit to your husbands. But as you can see, if you're watching me on Accordance, every time there's a Greek word underneath it, it'll highlight it. And you can see there's the word for wives. There's no word for submit because that, that word is not in the Greek. Greek is borrowing, submitting to one another. And then the next verse just says wives to your home, to their own husbands and husbands to love your wives. So the whole discussion of submission in Ephesians begins in 521, not 522. Mm-hmm. Submit to one another, and then everything flows out of that. And and all the points you made, I, I, I've been reading, I just literally had it in front of me, not even planning on it, but I'm going to have him on the podcast, hopefully. But David oh, DeSilva's book, second yeah. edition of, of Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity. And he goes mm. into a lot of detail about these household codes. And he shows that there were many secular Roman, Greco-Roman mm. examples of household codes. Mm. We This is mm. not Paul just making up instructions for churches. This is Paul adapting common Greco-Roman motifs of how the household yeah. spheres should operate. Yes. And then saying, now in church... And among believers, it needs to look like this. And so he's again, once again, that redemptive hermeneutic, he's using the culture to point it beyond the current cultural norms in so many ways, including the ones that you just noted.
1: I think these are important conversations to have. And I'm just, I'm so grateful that, um, that there are so many, uh, faithful believers in Jesus, who are also scholars, who are working hard on understanding first century realities, ancient Near Eastern realities, and helping to recontextualize um, the scriptures so that we're not just importing our own cultural content into them.
0: Amen. Amen. And that's a perfect segue. We didn't rehearse this, but that's a great segue into me asking you, so then who are some of them?
1: Who are some mm-hmm.
0: resources, some books, some uh, who, who should people that this discussion is not the end. This is a, a beginning point for people who want to seriously study this issue. So sure. who would well, you I recommend would, to them go to? I would
1: be remiss if I, uh, if I left off um, two complementarian sources. So this is Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which is kind of the classic uh, complementarian position um, and then women and. Who's that
0: ministry. by? Can you say the authors? Uh,
1: yeah, John Piper and Wayne Grudem. Okay. Uh, so this is a pr- it, this is a book produced by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood out of Southern Seminary. It was the 1993 Christianity Today Book of the Year. Hmm. It's sorely in need of updating, and I wish our complementarian brothers and sisters would please release a new edition because there's some stuff in here that's downright laughable about women, what women should wear and not wear. And I'm not even sure that all the contributors to this volume would be willing to contribute an updated version. Like some of them may have changed their views that we really need a new one of these. Right, right. Um, so we have a robust conversation partner, um, women and men in ministry by uh, Rob, Bob Sosi, who taught here at Biola until he died and then Judy Tenelshoff, who still teaches here at Biola, um, this is a, a maybe a, a more updated view of complementarity or um, complementarian perspective. Another colleague here at Biola is Ron Pierce, who just edited this third edition of Discovering Biblical Equality. So this is like these two books are kind of the counterpoint. Uh, on, on this discussion. And this one has a lot of up-to-date um, research. Uh, this just came out last year. It's a fantastic collection of, of articles, including by Gordon Fee, who, as you mentioned, just passed away last week, Cindy Westfall, Liz Hall, my uh, colleague here, um, Mimi Haddad from Christians for Biblical Equality, Craig Keener, uh, Lynn Kohick So there's lots of great contributors and Krista McCurland.
0: Uh, I will certainly. I'll say one point real quick and and it's just yeah. being super candid. Um I I got this copy as well and was reading through it. Readers or people that are, need to know, I had the, I had the second edition on Kindle. They are substantially different. Uh it's mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. a different book. In other words, yep. they've taken so many of the uh essays or chapters and have replaced a lot of them. I yep. I would encourage people to actually get both editions um, mm-hmm. because I found I I found some of the stuff that they let, that they replaced and or updated in this one I actually enjoyed it in the other edition a little bit better a couple of essays. Oh, interesting. And so I it's it, it is it's a resource either edition I think everyone complementary and egalitarian both should be familiar with and work with but just yeah. note that there I'm not making a judgment call on mm-hmm. either good or bad but just yeah. note there are some different things between the two editions of it
1: Yep, so and then you had
0: a do you have any more that out. you'd recommend? Yeah, I have
1: some more. So here's a shout out to my friend David Wilber who published this Is God a Misogynist? Mm-hmm. Understanding the Bible's Difficult Passages Concerning Women. If you just if you're somebody who just struggles with what to do with what seems like uh sexism in the Bible, I think David gives a really even-handed uh and and um really good handle on these passages from a conservative perspective, conservative in that he's taking scripture seriously, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but he does end up uh, going in egalitarian directions. Two books I've read most recently on this topic that have just been so illuminating is uh, Cindy Westfall's Paul and Gender, which I've mentioned several times. I have a blog post that I recently put on my blog with some of the highlights that I got from this book. And then Amy Peeler's new book, Women and the Gender of God. It's not quite on on, uh, gender roles, but it's a fantastic exploration of um, God and gender. Does it matter that Jesus is male? How can a male savior save women? Uh, Is God male? Uh, And she explores it from an orthodox perspective um, with very faithful, but in, engages with tons of feminist scholarship. And I think she's trying to help the church respond to feminist critiques of scripture. Mm-hmm. And she does it in a really robust way. Brand new book that I haven't even read yet is uh, Sue Edwards and Kelly Matthews, 40 questions about women in ministry.
0: Hmm.
1: And it actually goes through and answers each question from a, a hierarchical perspective and an egalitarian perspective. So oh, interesting. Um, So it's not, it's not giving you one side or the other, it's giving you both so that you can see kind of how people answer.
0: I I definitely want to get that resource because I, I appreciate so much the interaction when different views, when you, when different views are able to present for themselves and you're Mm -hmm. getting both in one, I've always learned better that way when people get to interact.
1: There's also this one, Two Views on mm. Women in Ministry, that kind of do does that, and then each side in, engages with each other. I haven't read this one either. I just have it on my shelf. Right. There's so many books and so little time.
0: <laughs> so many books, so little time. Yeah. Well, yeah. I will add to that, um, if folks haven't, uh, Craig Keener's Paul, Women and Wives. Craig Keener, mm. again, is a solid uh, biblical evangelical scholar. Yeah. And and then there are some others. I'll put them in the video description below. Uh, Scott McKnight. Yeah has written on it. Uh, Michael Byrd, I think, has a small mm-hmm. book on his view, how he actually changed his view on women in ministry. And mm-hmm. there there are a few others that I'll, I'll try to put them in the video description and label them by beginner, intermediate, and then scholarly so that readers mm-hmm, can mm-hmm. really dig into where they want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's end with the final question that I want to ask. And this was important for this discussion because... I want viewers to know Disciple Dojo is, it's a dojo, we spar, we, we, you know, exchange ideas and challenge ideas. So if you're watching and something you believe is being challenged, don't see that as an attack. A dojo is not where you go to fight people. A dojo is where you go to train with people. Now, that training does involve sparring. It does involve wrestling, trying to, you know, uh, choke each other and and throw each other and do all those things that you do. But the goal is not to hurt or injure each other. The goal is to make Mm. each other better. And Disciple Mm. Dojo exists to do that for biblical theology. So if you're watching this, I do want you to know I... Tri- studied with learned from am surrounded by works from and, and genuinely love and respect many, many complementary brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. am not convinced of their position. I don't, I'm not, I don't say I'm egalitarian because like we've talked about, I have some issues with, with that label as well. I usually just say I'm, I'm non-complementarian. And if somebody mm-hmm. asks, then I maybe give more clarity, but I, Carmen for you um, that that's my heart, that's disciple dojo now i'm I'm beholding only to my board. <laughs> uh, I don't have a dean or, or faculty or any others, so I can kind of say what I believe without worrying. But for some people, especially people that are in denominations or in institutions mm-hmm. or in places where there is uh, either uh, acknowledged differences or where you are doing ministry under the authority of, uh, uh, somebody who is on the other side from you. How Mm. do we work together? How do we Mm. have unity as Christian followers of Jesus when Mm. we come to issues like this, where we might have good faith disagreements?
1: Yeah. Such a good question. I think, for me, I have a deep respect for those across the spectrum on this issue who are truly trying to be faithful to Scripture. And I think one thing that helps me is that if I, if I'm engaging with someone who's not in the same place that I am on this, say, 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 somebody doesn't think women should be allowed to teach Bible at all, and that's what I do for a living. So then it can kind of feel like an attack. Right. I, what I try to do is is recognize we're all on a journey. Of understanding, and our journeys take different speeds, and there are different ways to get from beginning to end. And so, just having patience for each other, and realizing that not everybody is going to see things the same way, but that I don't have to answer to uh, to my peers. I have to answer to God, and I have to be faithful to what I believe God's calling me to do. I have to be faithful to what I believe Scripture is teaching. Um, and and always be doing that in the fear of God um, and making space for others who are on a journey that's um, led them to different conclusions.
0: Couldn't agree more. It, this is an area where Christians are going to, I mean, Christians have been disagreeing on this for centuries. This is not, mm-hmm. contrary to some rhetoric, this is not a modern invention of feminism, It's not uh, an outpouring of liberal Protestantism or evolutionism Mm -hmm. or Marxism or wokeism or social justice warrior, any of those things. None of those have anything to do with anything that Carmen and I have been talking about in this discussion. This has to do with how do we faithfully interpret scripture. And Mm -hmm. just like Mm -hmm. if the issue was Calvinism, if the issue Mm -hmm. was the days of creation, if the issues were eschatology, We have to, I think we have to recognize there are going to be areas where until we stand face-to-face with Jesus or Mm -hmm. until we are in the new creation, we will not see eye to eye. And I I think we're called to do our best. There may be times, I look at it where there may be times where you have to do a Paul and Barnabas separation Mm -hmm. for the sake Mm -hmm. of ministry and bless each other and just part your separate ways. But I think those are the exceptions rather than the norm. And I think that Christians can have genuine fellowship and, and even co-laboring even while we hold those disagreements, because we're called to be a family and what family doesn't have family disagreements among its members. So.
1: Yeah. I will have one last thought that I want to leave people with too, because I, I think, yes, we can agree to disagree. And I think that some, some of our colleagues who don't agree with us might say, well, why rock the boat if this is an issue that's um gonna be contentious and not everyone's gonna gonna agree on it? You know, why should a church or a department go through all of the work of revisiting this issue and with the with the possibility of changing a policy on what women can or can't do um, with the with the because of the the harm that it could cause or because of the disruption that it could cause? And you know, why don't we just not talk about it? Um, and I think what I want to leave people with is that there is a cost. There is a cost if we're going to say that women can't do X, y, and z. There's a cost if God is um, empowering, the spirit is empowering and God is calling women to do X, y, and z, and we're saying no. And so I think I think it's important for everyone who says there's a line to be willing to answer to God for their role in silencing, a woman who feels called by God to do it. And this is not me being on a on a campaign because I need more platform. Like I I've believe me I'm plenty busy. I have more on my <laughs> plate than I can handle right now. Um but when I when I look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he he's there's all these believers who are speaking in other tongues and Peter stands up and he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. It's unequivocal here. doesn't matter what translation you're reading. Um, it's men and women, sons and daughters who are are recipients of the Spirit's empowerment to prophesy, and I think if that's where, if that's what happened at Pentecost, and if that's where this is all headed, according to the prophet Joel, then the burden of proof is on those who would say, "Nope, women, you can't. You you have to be silent. Um, you're going to have to be able to explain why um, why silence is the right way forward." If the prophet is saying that the Spirit is going to empower everyone, and I, I personally feel like that's a high bar, um, to be able to make that case. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not compelled, but I'm not compelled by the arguments that say, no, we need to leave this to the men. Mm-hmm. So that, that's maybe a parting thought, just a, um, you know, we can agree to disagree, but there's actually something at stake here and that. And what's at stake is faithfulness yes. to to God's call.
0: Yes. That there are issues. Having disagreement doesn't mean that the issue is unimportant. And it doesn't mean, you know, that's why we need to have these discussions. And I, I mm-hmm. totally, once again, totally, totally agree. I hope for this video, people watching minimum, at the bare minimum, my goal is for them to stop proof texting their position, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. it is. And and in mm-hmm. particular, the complimentary and proof text of, well, 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, case closed, because there's, yeah. Far too much of that, and hopefully at least in this video, people have seen that, yeah. no, look at those two passages in detail, and the case is far from closed. At the end of the day, I believe you could make a plausible case that's theologically sound for complementarianism, but I think the case for making for a non-complementarian reading is more plausible. I think it's more in line with more of Scripture, and I think it does more... Uh, i think it does less disservice to what you just talked about the calling that god has given to sons and daughters his men and women that he's poured out his spirit on so i i want to i want to make sure that comes across to all disciple dojo viewers because i know that's carmen's heart as well is to say this matters and we're not here to to, to Push over, you know, upset apple carts for the sake of like, oh, look at me. I just stuck it to those stuffy complimentary. It has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that.